0: Hello, and welcome to the Bobby Yaga Project. The Bobby Yaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history. Lovely researched and recorded by your hosts, Margo and Sonia. Hi, I'm Margo. I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. welcome everyone Woo. it's baba yaga time it this is. week we are talking about bringing a baby being parents having your child Ren, children, children. <laughs> i was just gonna say one but then i'm like we're talking about history so you're gonna have like 12 of them <laughs> at least children, children. <laughs> that seems fine all right so Today, we're kind of taking a two-pronged approach. Prongs. Uh, Prongs. (laughs) So, I will go first and talk about the development of how people think about being a parent. How people kind of, how parents related to their children, especially very young children, so babies and toddlers. And then Marco will take it away and tell us all about how people feed baby. Yeah. How does, what does, what does, what does baby eat? why it was surprisingly complicated yeah especially recently we've done some weird things to feeding babies and might not have been good unnecessary complications (laughs) to feeding baby so yeah anyway how does how does one historically feel about being a parent I mean, historically, you're probably going to feel pretty good about being a parent because it means you survived childbirth slash your partner survived childbirth. So A plus, you've done it. The pregnancy was probably super uncomfortable and not really fun. And then labor and delivery were definitely not going to be a great time. But if you survived, congratulations, you're parents now. You did it. You did it. So now the question is, what do you do with this? helpless creature that is now entirely (laughs) dependent upon you well humans are super good at evolution yes like a baby can die from like having a hair wrapped around its finger because yeah that's a thing apparently babies will sometimes get like like uh like one of the like like an adult's strand of hair will get wrapped around their finger or like around a toe and then it cuts off circulation and they end up, like, with, like, these infections and stuff. It's messed up. They are delicate, fragile babies. I like, Taylor says that they have self-destruct buttons. Yes. On the top of their head. Yes, they Who, do. What, what species is, like, you know why it would be good? Is if before the skull is done, we just send it out into the world. I mean, it can't walk, it can't feed itself, it can't sit up or hold up its own head, and its skull isn't done. Listen, I am not here to argue about the merits of intelligent design theory, but (laughs) I will say that it's a, um, human babies are a big yikes. Yeah. I don't think that self-awareness, that consciousness is worth it. yeah no i honestly (laughs) i think we should just go back to being like amoebas fish creatures or something that had no idea what we were doing and have regular skulls that fit through our pelvises we all could have been vibing in the ocean right now but (laughs) someone decided to crawl onto land (laughs) so that's why we're here but medieval people (laughs) had a handy solution that both kept baby warm and potentially was meant to make their, their unfinished squishy little limbs and heads grow correctly. Which was swaddling. swaddling! 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 So, basically, babies, as now, obviously, uh, are very susceptible to cold. And, uh, they're also very wiggly and, you know, they just kinda, they're very fragile. So you kind of want to keep them all together. Like, just kind of tie them up together so they don't do anything incorrectly. <laughs> and get, get into things. So that's swaddling, where you take basically just cloth and uh, wrap that baby up. If you look at any medieval paintings, often babies, like, they look like little mummies because <laughs> they are wrapped very, like, straight and, yeah. like, very, Nice, nice tight wrapping. A little burrito. Exactly. And for the most part that That's actually how you do it, exactly like a Chipotle. Yeah, no, it's you exactly in the ends and yep. roll. Keep keep that baby beans in there, you know? <laughs> so basically that was like step one, swaddle the baby. You did it. Step two, where is baby gonna sleep? For the most part, they were going to sleep in some kind of cradle or bassinet, much like today. Uh, if you were a very fancy person right like royalty Mm -hmm. you would have cradles that were in insanity they would be carved into these like beautiful ornate displays they'd be gilded they would be decorated with the arms of the house like the coat of arms there'd be a bunch of plush fabric which like you're not supposed to have because baby i guess can like Suffocate yes, themselves. babies are so useless that they will roll over and suffocate themselves because they can't figure out how to roll back over, but still, you know, plush fabric uh for example, in uh Henry the sevenths household, they had a crib that was seven and a half feet long and two and a half feet wide, which I mean, okay, in a way, it does kind of make sense when you think about the fact that this would be holding like royal babies. So you maybe want people to keep back a little. You know? You maybe want a little distance. Uh, But if you were, like, literally anyone else and were just a normal person, you're probably going to have your kid in, like, a basket. Or, like... Something that is often used for something else. Yes. However... Baby drawers. Were baby drawers a thing? Baby drawers were not actually a thing, at least from what I could find, because... Even if you were a peasant, it seems like people were still using cradles okay. because you would have a basket or a box, basically, and then you would add the little rockers on the bottom, Aww. which, I mean, I assume could be removed later so that yeah. you could use the box or basket for something else. But it was seen as very important that your baby have a cradle. And there's actually, um, it seems like the baby might actually, the baby cradle might have developed in the Middle Ages, because that seems to be the earliest um, you know archaeological evidence and depictions that we see of that specific like yeah. putting a rocking thing on the bottom of a baby's bed. Sometimes people would also suspend a basket from the ceiling kind of like a hammock with a rope because there was this idea that like the best way to sort of soothe a baby and mm-hmm. keep them calm but also like away from any household activities because again like you're living in homes where there's like fires and sharp objects so baby is swaddled they're put in the cradle and then it's somebody's job to rock the cradle to keep the baby you know chilled out that um the hanging thing is also common in north america where they had the culture of the cradle boards yeah and um this is in one of our blogs, too. Yes. But, like, the cradle board, right, it was a form of swaddling as well, and you could keep the baby up so that they could see what was going on. Um, like, you could, like, prop them against a tree, or, like, up against the side of the house or whatever. Yep. They could see what was going on, um, but not get into anything. Um, but you could also take the cradle board and tie it to the limb of a tree or to the top of a, you know, the rafters in mm-hmm. a house or structure or whatever, and then it could, like, swing a little bit yeah fun so fact they could take a nap. if you are canadian you are almost certainly familiar with the jolly jumper which is the yeah. same idea where you strap baby into the little like thing yeah and then they are suspended and they can kind of bounce around and that was invented by a canadian indigenous woman whose name escapes me but i'll put her name in the episode notes because okay. that's just you know that's, that's a fun fact <laughs> but yeah so basically people um From what we have also in terms of advice from dating from the Middle Ages for how babies should be sleeping, both doctors and um, religious leaders actually advised against babies being taken to bed with their parents because there was the danger of suffocation. Um, And it's in fact this is actually used as um, an example by uh, Peter Abelard, who was like a medieval philosopher and theologian, in uh, showing the difference between outcome and intent. So that like, you know, if the baby suffocated, the outcome is tragic, but the t- parent's intent was to care for the child and keep them warm and keep them safe, yeah. right? So it's like, we know that there was this like discourse, essentially, <laughs> that, so, so I mean, when you hear about co-sleeping discourse today, please know that it dates to the like 12th century, <laughs> at least. Yeah. Uh, one of my other favorite quotes is from Bernard of Gordon, who was like a medieval physician who wrote a lot of, uh, like medical, medical advice. Yeah. And he advises against co-sleeping because the children will like it too much and then won't want to sleep in their own beds and will always <laughs> want to sleep with their parents. And I'm like, wow. The more we change, the more we stay the same. <laughs> Otherwise, there was um advice also of course for new parents about how they should care for a newborn baby um in the trotula there's a specific tip that the baby's nose should always be kept clean so like you know you want to babies make a lot of snot and you gotta keep wiping that away or else they're gonna get sickly and like that kind of thing and also apparently in order to help the child to speak more quickly you are supposed to Anoint the palate with honey and the nose with warm water. <laughs> like a puppy. Exactly. You gotta keep that nose moist, you know. But yeah, I mean, as the the other thing is, I think we brought this up before. Is Trotula the Trotula also recommends that parents speak often, like mm. to their children and in front of their children, so that they are able to talk sooner, basically. Yeah. Uh, another thing is. How people thought about their children. And I mean, I think a lot of the time we tend to think that people were very callous towards their kids back in the day. And, you know, as we've talked about before, that's pretty untrue. But I think these manuals, that date from the early 1300s, really point to how not true that is. So they're the two manuscripts dated to the early uh, 14th century. How the good wife taught her daughter and how the good man taught his son. So they're basically manuals that are directed towards literate but not elite people, because in these books it's all about like if you're a, if if you're a woman, how are you going to raise your daughters? If you're a man, how are you going to raise your sons? Right. Okay. So there is that very gendered you know expectations because there is it is such a gendered society so you know the how the good wife taught her daughter obviously has a lot of things about household management and you know how to be a good good housewife and do that kind of thing um but we know that it's not for an elite audience because it's in both books there's a lot of like money saving tips and like how to be thrifty how to be frugal which like obviously if you're an aristocrat you don't need to worry about like how to stretch that last shilling, am I right? <laughs> yeah. And in both of these manuals, they talk about, you know, to be a good parent, the first and last thing that are brought up in the book is the emphasis on um basically observing religious duties and making sure that the children are brought up correctly in their, like, with, with the tenets of their faith correct, basically. Mm-hmm. So the children are supposed to you know, go to church, follow the rules of the church, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. And they are also both in the. Both the daughter and the son are told to be moderate, not hasty, and not to laugh too loudly. <laughs> and they're also both warned against the dangers of gambling, against, um, you know, like, seduction by the opposite sex. So the daughter is told not to take gifts from men who are trying to seduce her, and the son has to stay clear of common women. <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So, I mean, it's pretty, pretty pretty, standard advice. You know, you're trying to tell your... I, I think it, it says something about how people saw their kids, that it's like, okay, we have these manuals about Here's the correct way to bring up baby basically like these are the things you should be worried about. You want to make sure your mm-hmm. kids stay out of trouble. You want to make sure that they are you know following the rules of like you know make sure you're going to church, make sure you're treating other people the way you'd want to be treated, make sure you are like acting generously, make yeah. sure that you aren't like you know getting get getting go, going out there and doing things that you shouldn't be doing that can get you into trouble naughty (laughs) i mean again we're talking about a time before like reliable birth control or reliable you know sti prevention yeah (laughs) so like yeah i'm not saying this didn't come with like a heaping side of like purity culture (laughs) but i mean it's also a lot of it does boil down to practical advice of like it would sure be great if you did not get pregnant outside of marriage and then you're stuck with this kid who you like do not have the means to take care of or if you like get assorted illnesses that we have no way to treat yeah yeah that sounds and yeah i think the other the other thing that the the kind of thing that i want to close on in in the medieval period specifically is this one passage that's from the um the uh how the good wife taught her daughter and there's a passage where i mean it's written in middle english so i'm not going to read in middle english but like (laughs) it would translate to Like, it's all written in verse because people were super into poetry back then. (laughs) Um, And it basically says, like, if it happens to you that all of your friends fall away and God takes uh, your child from you, don't turn your back on God and your faith. It will just end up undoing yourself. Okay, And, I mean, it's basically saying if you lose your friends and your kid dies like blaming god and turning your back on religion isn't going to help you cope and i think it is like it it stands out as this like right we think of a there's this idea of everybody being so hard-hearted and so like callous in the face of their kids dying because it happens so often and we also tend to think of like medieval people as like having this unshakable unquestioned faith where they just like everybody unquestioningly just like believes yeah whatever they're told and like that's it and here you have something where it's it's something that like the death of a child would be something that would be such a blow to a woman that it would cause her to question her faith and like i think that's really telling about how people you know felt about the loss of a child and how they felt about you know spirituality and religiosity and that kind of thing and like i just think it's really it it's very enlightening and this was a very popular manual like it was copied and recopied like you know it it was very well uh like well circulated you know so i think it's just uh, again i know we've talked about it before but i think it's just like sometimes you come across something like that where it's just such a like perfect example of (laughs) of the fact that Yeah, no, like, people really, really cared about their kids, even if they didn't raise them the exact same way we did, and even if they didn't, you know, maybe understand that relationship in the exact same way we do, like, there's still this, like, intense emotional bond, and, like, it is this huge loss, regardless of how many kids you've lost before. Like, yeah, it's not as shocking, I guess, but it's definitely still, like, horribly painful, but I think there's also, you know, moving into the kind of early modern period, because obviously, like, a lot of this stays the same. There's still the expectation of, you know, you're going to care for your child by swaddling them, rocking them to sleep, like, keeping them in their cradle, trying to keep them alive. <laughs> um, but when we start looking into, like, say, colonial America, it's also a little bit different. Um, I'm pulling from the myth of the perfect pregnancy here because, again, here in a lot of cases there wasn't even, like, we do start seeing a little bit of um, different understandings of what kind of material and emotional preparation there would be involved. So children would still have their, like, linens made up. So as we've talked about before, linens were very important and you would still... You know, a, a mom-to-be would sew up some, you know, some clothes, basically, for the coming child. But there probably wouldn't have been, and, and they definitely were still swaddling. But in a lot of cases, there would not necessarily have been a cradle. There wouldn't have necessarily been that rocking motion. Like, it would have been more like what you were talking about before, like the kind of drawer. Kind of <laughs> Yeah, where it's like you just kind of set the baby down somewhere because you're in this situation, right, like especially in the earlier part where you're kind of eking out a living and you don't necessarily have this same like stability that you had in the like in the old world, quote unquote. Right, right? where like, you know, you maybe have somebody who is like, you know, you've inherited this cradle or you can like pass baby items between people. So it is this more kind of austere situation, but like the general principles remain the same of like, make sure you wrap up the baby, put them in some kind of a sleeping area and make sure they, you know, stay warm and dry and don't get too close to the fire or anything. (laughs) However, as we move into the kind of late 18th century and into the 19th century, both in you know, the U.S. and Canada and then in Europe as well, we do start to see this move towards the kind of separating out the baby from the rest of family life. And there would be more and more material goods that come with the baby, right? So for the first time, uh, particularly wealthier families started setting up special nurseries for children. Right. And this is right before you would have your cradle but it would be in the room with you like even in a wealthier household the cradle would probably stay either like yeah i guess if you were like the aristocracy you would still have the cradle but it would be in the room with the wet nurse or something right like that would be its own thing and then for everybody else who wasn't the literal monarch (laughs) uh cradle was going to be right next to the parents bed basically But for the first time, we see nurseries for children and this formal separation of this is where the children sleep and this is where the adults sleep. And we start seeing things like more elaborate cribs rather than like... Mm -hmm here's a basket that hangs from the ceiling. (laughs) Uh, We start seeing high chairs, bathing basins that were like specifically sized and shaped for infants. We even start seeing um, like child sized utensils and bowls and spoons and forks and things rather than just having children, you know, use adult sized items. Basically. We also start to see this, um, kind of sentimentality i guess would be the best word for it Mm -hmm. um towards babies specifically and this idea of having like a really intense emotional bond right away um in the 19th century that wasn't present before right so i mean again it's not that people weren't bonding with their kids prior to the 19th century but for the most part so in the past right there would be like okay people would thank god that the mother and child both came out of the ordeal of birth and labor and delivery like unscathed and right. they were healthy and they were fine but in the 19th century we start moving away from this sort of immediate concern about physical survival and is like it is also being remarked upon like how how this like, big emotional connection happens immediately and how, you know, you experience this joy of becoming a mother and, like, you know, you you have this immediate bond with the baby. Mm-hmm. And it seems like a lot of this is due to, like, again, this is this is more so from the, like, middle-class bourgeois perspective because in the 19th century is the first time we really start seeing this idea of, like, Stay at home mom whose primary job and primary role is caring for and educating the children. Because right prior to this, whether you were like a colonial woman in the United States or Canada, or if you were like a peasant woman in Europe, you know, yes, obviously you had to take care of your children, but you were working like you were you were functioning on a working farm for the most part so you know yes you have your baby swaddled in the crib and you're like churning butter and you know feeding the chickens and sewing clothes for the entire family and like doing all these other tasks and also kind of like keeping an eye on the baby right right but this is the first time really when we start seeing that this sort of middle class is in a position where the women are basically hiring servants to do all that like heavy lifting around the house and also because of the more consumer products that are available right like you don't have to make all of your own clothes anymore you can go to a like store and buy certain items like when like you know what i mean like when we see like especially as we progress through the 19th century right like we move away from this like you essentially have to make everything yourself because there's so much more consumer goods out there which frees up a lot of women's time and energies to be directed towards children and it plays into that whole like angel of the hearth uh, motif and situation where the idea is that the woman's job is to care for the children and just make home this like comfortable cozy place and then as we keep going into the 20th century this does start to become more and more accessible to even members of the working class because you again have more and more production has shifted out of the home <laughs> Sorry. i know it helps me i know yeah normally like I, that yeah thing where... so basically As we enter, you know, late 19th and into the 20th century, we also get more and more working class women who are able to stay home with their children because we get more and more this idea of, you know, the husband should be the wage earner who goes out and earns a wage and the woman stays home and tends to the home and children. Um, And like I said, because so much of production at this point has shifted outside of the house, that basically means that the mother's time is supposed to be spent on you know like spending time with the children educating the children caring for the children and like cleaning the house Mm -hmm. which is a very different beast to you know running a farm basically where you are you know spinning wool and then weaving that into cloth and then you have to dye that and then you Mm -hmm. need to like sew all of your family's clothes and bed linens and You know, you also have to preserve all your own food after growing all of your own food and like doing all this and chopping wood and hauling water. And it's like as more and more of that is basically commercialized Mm -hmm. and becomes a consumer good, you don't have to make and do so many things. So more and more, it's women are able to basically stay home. Their husband goes to work. And then all of their energies are being put towards their children, specifically children who are, um, you know, younger than school age. Mm -hmm. Because obviously once they're in school, they are spending a good chunk of the day out of the home. But even then, you know, it's quite common still for children to come home for lunch and like that kind of thing. So you're still, you know, constantly spending time with with the kids. Like you're spending a lot more time than somebody who... I, okay, you're not spending more time with them, but you are spending more time where you are like actively doing things with the child rather than like, you know, okay, I need to churn this butter so that we don't waste all this milk that we just got. Okay. The other thing is because of this like wage-labor shift, right, where people are no longer kind of subsistence farming more or less – children are no longer a workforce right so like kids might still be expected to help their parents financially in the long term and like maybe help them out in old age and that kind of thing but you know it's still that by and large like children were expensive at this point right like as we move away from production within the household to production outside of the household children are an expense rather than like economically bringing in like like income essentially for the family especially with creating child labor laws which like to be clear is a very good thing but it creates a big shift in how people think about parenthood and how people uh, become parents because now at this point people are you know it it's no longer just seen as like okay well You know, uh, it's just natural and normal that I'm going to get pregnant all the time because, again, as we've talked about previously, there's much more uh, options available in terms of birth control. And there's also no longer this pressure on you to have a bunch of kids because so many of them are going to die because we do see, you know, infant mortality going down in these years. And there's also a lot less pressure to have a whole bunch of kids because you don't need 10 kids to work on your (laughs) farm if what's going on now is your husband works at the factory and you stay home cooking and cleaning. Like, it doesn't make sense. So rather, you know, you really get this focus shift where it's, okay, becoming a parent is about the joys of parenting. It's about the emotional fulfillment and emotional attachment that comes with having children, um, and the biggest shift we can actually see with this is the, uh, shifting way that people adopted children. Because for, like, most of history, probably, but like, you know, we have more so records from the 19th century. Children who are going to be adopted, like, the most likely people to be adopted were older boys. Because people wanted to adopt a boy who was already capable of, like, you know, Hauling things on the farm and, like, working in the fields and working with animals. And for the most part, if you were a small child, you would end up at an orphanage or uh, maybe even worse. Uh, Babies were placed in places called baby farms. (laughs) So mothers who couldn't keep their children paid a fee for their care. And these places were basically horrific. It was just, like babies laying in cribs crying and not really being cared for all day but that was yeah it it was not a good situation but when we see when we get to the 1920s this situation actually reverses um where older children become much less likely to be adopted because it's seen as you know well then you're missing out on all the joys of parenting yeah if you Adopt someone who's older, and the idealized adoptee was, quote, a blonde, blue eyed girl. Because adopted children were not supposed to be useful, they were supposed to be cute. Oh, that's you. It is. I guess it's me too. I used to be blonde. Yeah, we both would have been snatched up in the yeah. 1920s adoption scene. <laughs> Little did they know. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible choice but yeah and that's um (laughs) you're a great choice (laughs) but yeah i mean so basically we also see who is adopting children shifts because now um you know prior to the 1920s most people who were adopting children would have been people who were you know working on a farm or like yeah like essentially farmers or maybe like skilled craftspeople like a blacksmith who needed a strong boy to help, right? Yeah. Um whereas by the nineteen twenties, and this trend continues up to today, adoptive parents are much more likely to be older professionals who are childless but want that emotional reward of childbearing of child rearing. Right. But don't need any financial benefit from that child and in fact are willing to pay a lot of money to be allowed to adopt a child basically now the other thing is that as the 20th century kind of gets gets into full swing there's more and more marketing towards parents right so it's people going out and saying okay i'm going to become a parent i need to go shopping i need to have like certain specific items Um, things made special for babies exactly so you know we start to see more and more things that are marketed at new parents and targeted towards them and specifically a lot of things that wouldn't have been deemed as you know necessary previously so you know they would have lots of toys lots of baby furniture lots of you know cute little outfits for babies and that kind of thing because more and more it became marketed as you know this like this is how you be a good parent being a good parent means giving your child all the things that you never had so <laughs> right. for a lot of parents right like especially in these early days right like you're having kids in the 1920s so you grew up through like you know a much more like austere <laughs> society and situation it becomes a, like, okay, I need to get these things because that will make my child happy. And it's fine for me to spend money on this because I'm not indulging myself. I'm rather taking good care of my child. And there's also, you know, as we reach the mid-century, it goes from being a good parent is a lot of buying things for your child. It's also a lot about having the right emotional attachment to your child. Right. Because this is the point where we see a lot of psychologists and psychotherapists and behavioral biologists coming out of the woodwork to say, you know, you're doing it wrong. Exactly. Um, You'll love this one, Margot. Freudians accused women of causing their children's autism and schizophrenia. (laughs) Because as we all know, a mother who withholds affection results in an autistic child. You hear that, Mama? (laughs) You did this to me! (laughs) It's your fault! That's definitely how autism works. (laughs) I was going to be so happy. She's like, one more thing (laughs) that you can blame me for! (laughs) But you basically have a, a lot of this idea that children need to form these specific types of attachments and babies especially they need to have this specific type of intense emotional connection with a primary caregiver <sighs> cough mom cough <laughs> it's never the dad it's never yeah, anybody dad. else it's always the mom mm-hmm. um so you know you have a lot of these like by bi- like biology and psychology kind of coming together to to discuss this and You know, it it creates this cultural milieu where people are very, very intensely worried that kids aren't attaching to their parents properly. And this really kind of hits a fever pitch with the psychoanalyst John Bowlby, who first proposed his attachment theory in the early 1950s. So at this point, right, there were a lot of kids uh, who had been orphaned or you know, had spent a lot of time in World War II in group homes where they were being sheltered away from their families. And the WHO had commissioned a study to ask, how do you rehabilitate these children to create, like, healthy, functional, like, adults who are okay? Which, you know, makes sense when you have been horrifically traumatized by, like, war. Mm -hmm. So, Bulby. Used the psychoanalytic theory and psychological studies of children and biologists' observations of maternal behavior in animals. And he is the one who gives us the attachment theory, which is the idea that for a child to grow up, you know, normal and healthy and fine, uh, they need to have this intense, loving attachment, a secure attachment with a primary caregiver. And, you know, he. Like everybody else assumed that that caregiver has to be the child's, preferably biological mother, right. if not biological, then adopted mother. So basically, you have this idea, right? That we we go from a like, yes, of course, you will love your child, but you must also so now, right? Like in the past, yes, of course, you love your child. Everyone like you are supposed to love your child, of course. <laughs> But now, it reaches this fever pitch of, like, you need to love your child in the correct way, yeah, because if you, you, you it right? don't love your child right, if you don't, then it's your fault that they become, you know, sad adults who, like, can't function in society and have psychiatric problems. <laughs> it's your fault, Papa. <laughs> This is going to be great because she has told me that she is listening to the podcast (laughs) and she also was uh, thoroughly convinced that I didn't love her as a baby. She told me because I, my little brother was very huggy and clingy Mm. and um, I was autistic. (laughs) And also, um, I apparently didn't have a strong reaction to the mom dying in um, Land Before Time. I was just yes. like, sucks for Littlefoot, little foot, I guess. <laughs> my mom was like, why don't you love me? Oh, Like, no. my brother, like, couldn't watch Land Before Time because he was, like, oh. so upset about this. Because my brother is, like, you know, a normal child. Yes. <laughs> who, like, likes to hug and relates to dinosaurs, I guess. And I was, like, autistic. <laughs> My mom was like, There's something wrong with her. (laughs) She's going to tell me that this never happened. She's gonna listen to this and then call me and be like, This never happened. And I'm like, she told me this story like all of my childhood. So Mama, this did happen, and you told me this story a bunch of times. (laughs) But just putting your mom on blast on the podcast. (laughs) We also have as we get into the 1960s and 70s um this kind of two two different ways that people start pulling right where on one hand you get the like all you need is love kind of people (laughs) who are like your child just needs to be allowed to be who they're gonna be like it's fine you don't have to worry about it you don't need to like you know you can just let them do what they want and they're just gonna like you know just vibing they're just vibing (laughs) you know they're just gonna hang out it's gonna be fine But again, there's still this idea that they're supposed to be very emotionally attached. It's supposed to be a super emotionally attached situation, right? Um, But you also, at this point, especially in America, start to get the conservative backlash where people (laughs) get very concerned about family values. (laughs) That entered the Republican Party platform in 1976. A year later, evangelical leader James Dobson founded the Focus on the Family. (laughs) Um, So, you know, on one hand you have this like Like, on one hand, you have kind of the remnants of the hippies being, like, no, just, like, let your kids vibe. Like, let them be free-range. Like, let them do what they want. And then on the other hand, you have, like, family values. Like, mother must stay home with children and, like, show them the morally upright way to live. Dads Dads are for spanking children. Exactly. Dad must go to work and then come home and spank children. (laughs) You only eat meatloaf. <laughs> Mom and dad had sex exactly two times the missionary position. With the lights <laughs> out through a hole in the sheet. <laughs> and they have those two children. They're they... named after the grandparents. <laughs> and everyone is extremely <laughs> heterosexual and would never even t- Consider birth control as an option. All of the children were very upset about Land Before Time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to back to the main topic. So basically, we reach the 1980s and 90s, and we start to see this like shift, especially in the 80s, right where you get more and more women who are entering the workforce, like for the first time, not just as like. out of economic necessity right because obviously there were working women like women who went somewhere to work in like the 19th century the 18th century but previously that was only like the poorest working class would go into the factories and stuff right like whereas by the 19 like end of the 1970s and into the 80s and 90s, you see more and more women who are like, no, I want to enter the professional workforce. Like, I want to be able to go and, like, get a degree and get a job and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Which, great, excellent women's liberation. However, this also comes with, like, even more guilt. Because now everyone's like, wow, how can you be a working mom but also care for your child? Because, again, we're coming off of this, like, you know baby boomer style like as in the way the baby boomers were supposed to be raised quote-unquote with the like intense attachment right stay-at-home mom her primary focus is raising children caring for them nurturing them giving them all the affection they need so that they don't become autistic and (laughs) then (laughs) suddenly everyone was like maybe women should have like rights and be allowed to do things Like, but then what'll happen to the children? Won't someone think of the children? Their babies won't care about Lamp before time. It's truly the most (laughs) tragic outcome I can imagine. So, we get this idea (laughs) of intensive mothering, right? So, they, yeah. So, we get this idea of intensive mothering, right? Mm -hmm. Where, like, it's this idea that, okay, you are out all day working but when you come home and on the weekends and stuff like you should be actively cultivating these like intense emotional connections with your child you should be putting in lots and lots of time and effort into making sure that you are like forming these emotional bonds and it finally finally it starts to extend to dads as well like (laughs) a little bit it's still nowhere near the level that it extends to mothers but we do see an uptick like especially a quite significant mm-hmm. uptick in how much time fathers are spending with their children and, like, being emotionally involved, being, you know, like, doing the caregiving rather than, you know, what we had seen earlier, which would be much more, like, disciplinarian role, or, like, son, come play catch with me, but like, we start to see more and more of, like, you know, dads be taking that active role in right. the child's life. However, all of this, like, attachment stuff truly it reaches the fever pitch in 1993 with William Sears who coined the term attachment parenting. And you have this whole movement that kind of around him. Because Sears' idea was just intense practice around caring for infants and toddlers. and The only way this is supposed to be the only way that children can be happy and that the parents can be fulfilled. And in an attachment theory, the parent Uh, The mother. Again, it's always the mom. Basically has to spend every moment with her baby. She has to sleep with the baby. She needs to, when they are not sleeping, carry him or her in a sling against her body. And every time the child cries or fusses or gets upset, you have to breastfeed on demand. There's no, you know,
1: bottles are the devil.
0: You have to, like nurse your child every time they so much as make a noise and also they can never be allowed to like just like vibe like they can't just be left like in a crib or in a whatever or like in a playpen or on their jolly jumper no they either have to be attached to like they have to be held against you or actively breastfeeding or sleeping next to you at all time that is it that is what you're supposed to do um you have to allow your child to wean on their own schedule and sleep on their own bed on their own schedule. And while these theories, like, acknowledge that, like, oh, yeah, you know, maybe mom might want to, like, shower occasionally. (laughs) Like, maybe she has to, like, use the bathroom. There's really no, like, practical way that they go about this. It's just sort of like, well, but, like, you should want this baby attached to you literally at all times. Always. Every second of the day. Both sides of that sound like a nightmare for me. Yes. It's like if I was that baby or that mother, yes. that is my actual nightmare. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Again, I am not here trying to <laughs> Uh, Okay, I am not here trying to um, be mean to anyone. And if attachment parenting is a thing that works for you and your family, great. Fantastic. Genuinely, do whatever's going to work for you. What I am annoyed with is this idea that the only way to be a good parent, and specifically a good mother, is to give up everything. Like yeah. to be this complete martyr for your child, where you cannot so much as take a shower without feeling intense guilt because that's five minutes of precious time that your baby could have been squished up against you. Now your baby's never going to love properly. Yeah, and it's just not supported by <laughs> <laughs> that. That's like the only way to parent. Yeah. Like, there's just no evidence that that's the only way that can work. And, like, yeah, there's, you know, a lot of different things that different kids are going to, like, you know, nineteen in in the 1950s, yeah, you had moms who were supposed to be, like, super emotionally attached, and they definitely were, but they also generally, like, slept in a crib, ate from a bottle, were rolled around in a stroller they had play pens and like you know as compared to this like 1990s and even into today there's still a lot of attachment parenting stuff where it's like you should feel horrible and guilty for every single solitary moment that your baby isn't physically attached to you and it's just like you know it's not I'm I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I'm like an expert on child development, but I'm pretty sure the evidence does not bear out that you need to like have your kid attached to you every single second of the day and night. Like, you know, I think we have to remember that there have been many different ways to parent and, you know, honestly... As long as you love your kid and are not actively traumatizing them, they're probably going to be fine. Yeah. And now we're going to talk about food. So um, now that we've realized just how much research uh, we've done (laughs) on these things, um, I have about as much information uh, on just, just eating and feeding babies and how food has changed and stuff. So we're going to divvy this divvy this up and i'm actually going to come back uh next time with information about feeding baby um and how that sort of plays into all of these ideas uh, and some other ideas as well so this has been parenting babies and we'll come at you next time with feeding babies we will see you very soon yeah Bye-bye. Bye Mama. Thank you for listening to the Baba Yaga project. And as always, thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and on our website for the most up-to-date happenings. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It really helps us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. There's also Patreon exclusive merch and content, and we'll see you next week.